0: Hi, this is Isaac Arthur, welcome to the show and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad free plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code IsaacArthur. We'll get started in just a moment, but go ahead and start getting your questions in the chat window so our moderators can start relaying those to me as soon as we start. Please try to keep the questions concise and watch your spelling, and try to be polite to others in the chat. We usually go for about an hour so you probably want to grab a drink and a snack, though we'll take a break about halfway through too. With all that said, welcome and let's get started. Good afternoon everybody and welcome to our livestream Q&A for uh, April uh, 2022, this occasion happens to commemorate the second year of my wife actually being our wonderful co-host for this thing here she is hi as non coincidentally, this is also our second anniversary so while i normally say afterwards that i will be taking comments that you put in the questions i'll be in them the next day you're welcome to put questions in the comments if we don't get to them today but there will probably be a couple of days before i get to them because we're pretty much leaving the live stream and going straight on vacation for a couple of days so <laughs> with all that said let's go ahead and get to your questions
1: All right, well, our first question is from Igor Briskin, and he wants to know if besides nuclear steam rocket engines, what other options exist to travel the solar system quickly, like the new Expanse?
0: I think the big problem in terms of trying to do anything with fusion that we have right now is, of course, we don't actually have fusion yet, so we can't really say what's going to work and what's not going to work for that. Um, The idea behind the Epstein drive, I've never been entirely clear on, there's, there's a difference between the show and the official write-up in book one, um, but it is basically just a classic fusion torch drive. Right? Um, the notion there is that only with something as powerful as fission or fusion or antimatter can you get to go to those speeds. But you don't see this if you got an exhaust velocity. That's the speed of light. But what do we have that would do that? Light, right? So that's why we start often talk about laser sails on the show or light sails on the show. You use mirrors all over the solar system. If you can't get fusion working, if you don't feel comfortable using nuclear bombs to propel everything or you know steam water reactors, right? Um, then you put up big mirrors around every planet uh, where they can be gravitationally anchored through them, and you use those to bounce light beams from the sun all over the place that people can ride around on. That probably requires a lot of coordination, but it would probably be doable. And it would also probably be microwaves in most cases rather than like visible lasers.
1: So the next question is from Flor Horbeck. Did dimensions emerge at the same time fundamental forces separated? When it comes to gravity, it doesn't seem to be. Or were they already there at t equals zero?
0: The answer to that question is that we have no hard evidence of anything that happened prior to the wall of last scattering or surface of last scattering, three hundred seventy to three hundred eighty thousand years after we believe the Big Bang took place. Uh, so it's it's a little hard for us to speak to what happened that first second. We do the modeling based off of basically how clumped up all the galaxies. That's how we figure these things out or guess towards them. Um, however, any answer I give you on that one's going to be a big question mark. Whether or not space and time had to exist before the physical constants could exist or those came in just afterwards is one of those ones where it might be like, a, you know, how many angels can they sit on the head of a pin type of thing where we might not ever know the answer. I don't think you could have the physical constants meaningfully existing before you actually had space and time, though.
1: All right. The next question is from Void, and he says the interstellar ship from Avatar had the crew and cargo behind the thrusters so that it could keep them far away from the radiation source while conserving mass. Would this actually work out?
0: Um, you know, the thing on something like that is if you want to keep your reactors far away, you could do the, the nacelle style thing on the Enterprise, uh, the original Starship Enterprise they have in, in TOS and, and TNG2. They always had the the engines away off on the side. And the idea there was those were supposed to be uh, keeping radiation away from the crew. Um, but, uh, although I think they kept the model because it looks cool, you know. <laughs> um, to keep radiation away from your ship, you could put it forward or back, and that way have the same cross-section as you're going through interstellar space. At the same time, in a lot of cases, it's not going to be all that necessary. One reason is that you might go ahead and put your engine forward of your radiation shielding. So you have that extra layer of radiation shielding between you, you, you the crew, and it'll space too, because that's another your big source for it. So you can put the engine forward. Um, I would generally tend to think it'd be better to stick it behind. But then the question becomes, what is your super material that you're using for the superstructure of that ship? Is it really p- strong tensile? Or is it really strong compressive? If it's really strong compressive strength, then you want your engine at the bottom. That way it's pushing up on the ship. Uh, if it's really strong tensile you want to drag your ship behind the engine you know that's basically the key factor on that one there
1: all righty um i just was scrolling through and a number of folks are saying happy anniversary thank you all and the next question here is from mm-hmm. brian van buren any chance of a return to the megastructure series with things that we can build but probably wouldn't like eater worlds free spheres and world houses which we would likely skip in favor of O'Neill cylinders
0: know, yeah, that's actually a good question. I see Sindhu just came in on the live stream pump, by the way. Um, okay. So yeah, there was there. one of our folks was coming just a hail late to get questions into us, so we had to interrupt the normal schedule. Speaking of megastructures, so we did the original megastructures summary. That is the original episode of the show. Um, and I've done episodes on individual megastructures, but one of the things we have not done is I would just do a redo on that summary so that you could actually get all of them, including the ones we can never realistically do an episode on. There wasn't short entries, so I decided to do that as my presentation to the IDSC exactly one month from now, which is going to be our replacement for the live stream. Right, uh, we're doing a presentation live next month's live stream in Arlington, Virginia, at the International Space Development Conference, uh, at the same time, four o'clock. They're nice enough to be in that slot uh, on mega structures, and then I that is following up by that is going to be a one hundred minute long summary video that we'll be releasing only in June, June ninth. That actually will go into more detail and list every single mega structure we could come up with, um, and that took me and Sarah because uh, I was losing my voice for part of it, so she helped me out on that. It was just too much to talk about three days to record. So <laughs> that's our project for the next month is to kind of process that one hundred plus minute video into a uh, video format, and we're just going to release that as one big video on June. 9th to kind of commemorate the talk with the idsc and that uh, redo and, and as we come up on eight years of the show all righty so yes <laughs>
1: <laughs> it was a long recording so i saw somebody yeah. said that they miss your episodes because they have to clean their room they can play it in the background yeah as you well. can
0: and again we do all these on audio even the live stream so i misses some of the visual aspects though
1: All right, so Scooter GSP says, what do you consider the most important distinction that must be considered between sci-fi and fantasy when attempting good world building in those respective settings?
0: Say that one more time.
1: The most important distinction to be considered between sci-fi and fantasy when attempting good world-building.
0: You know, before we were going on AI, I was noticing the comments, I think it was Nihil, one of the others was asking if I'd ever read Michael Moorcock. Uh, he's a fantasy writer, and he does some kind of sci-fi flavors. And ironically, that's the audiobook I've been I'm listening to recently because they just released a new updated version of the audio for him. Uh, he has some very old recordings them that, that were kind of lower quality. And uh, the photo is actually by Neil Gaiman. It's very good to listen to. So, um, but... Uh, he is one of those fancy authors that I think of as from the same period as like Roger Zelazny, where a lot of time, or Amber Cafe, where they blow the line between fancy and science fiction a lot. And um, you know, in the more modern context, uh, you get so many of the ones that are like uh, like Gamma World, where it's the post-apocalyptic Earth is what the fancy is. That that's you see that with um, Terry Brooks' series, for instance, um, and uh, or the you know Middle Earth of Tolkien. That's actually Earth some ages back, right? Is the idea there? And I'd say with all these things, we are trying to get that line tree in science fiction and fantasy, and you are trying to get that little bit of realism. The key thing is to follow Sanderson's laws. another fantasy vital, and, and the first one of that is basically whatever you're introducing is magic, whatever you're introducing your system. As um, much fun can be had from that by knowing what its limitations are, and keeping it consistent so the audience can think about it, as can by just having to do sex machina, which admittedly Tolkien tend to do a lot, with, you the know, magic do whatever it could do at the time you never really knew how strong it was. And there was a flavor to that that can be good for writing too, but if you're looking for these long series and interactions with your audiences and things like that, whether it's a science fiction technology or a fantasy technology uh, or fantasy magic, is just having this kind of realism of interaction where the audience can think about what they would be able to do with it. Maybe even the equivalent kind of running our D&D campaign set in that. And that's also where you'll get people writing back in this modern time We interact with our audiences saying, hey, you could do X, Y, or Z with it instead too. And that's important, although you need to keep that kind of thing once it gets canonized because it can cause problems. Your audience is looking at something, you suddenly break the rules that's been going on for a series of books or films. Um, and, uh, you know, you, as an example, everybody loved the cinematic effect in Last Jedi where they ran that one ship at hyperspeed. Beautiful cinematography, but that was such a game breaker to all the previous films and shows that it upset people at the same time, too, so...
1: We seem to have quite a bit of interest in nuclear technology today, so I'm going to try to lump some of these together. Uh, Sean McMaster wants to know if it's possible to build a clean nuclear bomb that could be used for terraforming and propulsion with little to no radiation contamination. Opposite of a dirty bomb, what isotopes would it use?
0: Um... The the key to building a clean bomb is to build bigger ones for the most part, because what's happening with it is they usually tend to get a better burn on bigger bombs. And a lot of it has to do with the geometry of the bomb too. Um your default dirty bomb is essentially one that's inefficient. And all the auto styles tended to be just because they were lower yield and they tend to be the gun style, which is where you're just slamming two things together. Your preferred method of doing them is to do the um you know to basically implode the device, just like with a supernova you're putting explosives all around a sphere of the stuff to detonate it in one tiny sphere. That's kind of your critical one. I would say the biggest one to actually have cleaner bombs is to start testing back up again. And I know people don't really like the idea of doing nuclear testing on the planet, which is why a lot of us favor doing it on the moon. Uh so the moon is already a radiation scarred heck hole, so you can go ahead and blow it to bits. Um but that would be my best statement for how to go about doing that is if you're trying to go for lower yield ones, um you're probably going to have to use fission as your main factor there, in which case you are going to have some some relatively large amounts of fallout. Use Fusion bombs are the ones that let you really kick up the amount because they don't have those isotopes being used as much. You use them to set up the, the explosion up, but there's a lower yield percentage-wise of that uh, of that um, well, unused burned isotopes. Um, but I would say in that case, testing is the best way to find a better better setup for what's going to minimize it. I don't think you're going to find a different isotope to use that would be plentiful, though. You're going to have to stick to that uranium-thorium cycle.
1: All right. Thank you, TKG Wildfire, for your super chat. And he wants to know, what would be a possible energy-to-mass ratio for ion engines to get from surface to space in atmosphere with current or near-future technology?
0: Energy-to-mass ratio or power-to-mass ratio?
1: Well, he said energy to mass ratio, but if we should be talking power to mass <laughs> ratio...
0: Well, either, either one can walk in that context. Um, you need to be able to kick out an awful lot of energy out of an ion drive, and they're kind of not designed with that in mind. The, the, the critical aspect of the ion drive is that you're trying to shoot an ion out the back at much higher velocity than gas comes out the back of a normal rocket engine. And the problem is that the gas is coming out of that engine based on how hot it is. You know, a typical rocket plume... Your speed of your gas is based on what gas it is, hydrogen being the one that tends to come out the fastest because it's very light at a given temperature and uh, that's the key thing there how hot it gets well the ion engine is basically using it like an old vacuum tube to shoot the things out the back. If you try to really increase the density on something like that in terms of how much it's thrusting out to get that higher power ratio, you're going to start getting heat and that's going to be problematic because you basically have the same issue we have with rockets, which is you know we we will melt the rocket if we get any hotter than that so i think that's your limitation on ion engines i don't really expect them to ever be a good atmospheric exit device um but uh i i mean that would basically be the answer on that one i'm afraid
1: william walter hi isaac when talking about the star the earth revolves around could you say soul thanks for entertaining this question and entertaining and informing me for years
0: I usually call it Sol, I think, but the problem is that with a lot of our, because I, I, it, it is a solar system, I suppose, so Sol, but uh, I think um, the problem is that for a lot of our audience, and, and this is a critical thing I always have to remember, most people coming in, even if they're scientifically minded to watch our show, do not know what we are talking about for large chunks of the episode, and most people don't know the term Sol as, as the name for our son, Uh when you know by default coming in it's just that's a newer thing to call it that they'll recognize Luna but they might not recognize Sol you know and so uh I will try to pronounce it as Sol though now I think about because I've always been calling it Sol (laughs) 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 but uh that's with with that in mind
1: thank you Merv Johnson for your super chat what are secondary tech implied from a working Alcubierre drive
0: Alcubierre drive
1: expanding and contracting space and time Artificial gravity or anti-gravity? Easier fusion? What else? Happy um, anniversary.
0: Gravity and anti-gravity would be the big one there because with those, you should be able to actually compress space-time in front of you or, or expand it behind you. Um, specifically, to compress it in front of you would be the more important part, I think, in some ways. If um, you, know, you can kind of constantly fall forward, that helps a lot. Even you know, if it's like the uh, kind of the concept we see with, like, the, I believe it's the differential drive. Um, one of those hypothetical ones that relies on things like negative mass actually existing. Uh, for the warp drive to really exist as as a faster than light method, I think you have to have negative matter or genuine negative energy. And, and I think people often mistake when we say negative energy, um, you know, we discovered negative energy or something like that. They mean lower than the vacuum level, or the base vacuum level, like it's that false vacuum or vacuum energy level. They don't really mean a negative quantity as opposed to like we cancel out normal energy you know it doesn't quite work that way and if we find those things change a lot suddenly you can go ahead and say yep warp drives or balls they should work
1: (laughs) albert jackinson says happy anniversary isaac and sarah i have no questions today surprise but i'm here watching as always here's to hopefully many more anniversaries
0: (laughs) thank you very much so uh and and again as i mentioned in the other start uh, Sarah suggested while we were engaged she should come on and ask me questions that would make the format a little bit better than me kind of reading them off and answering them and I agreed that we didn't actually get a chance to implement it until after we came back for our honeymoon so that was that very first one I think I can't remember if it was the first one that I still did normally in May or if we actually switched over that very first May or not but it has worked out a lot it was a
1: all, long so. process to convince you that you would look at the camera more if i was talking
0: that's probably true too there was mostly because it was hard to go back and forth to reading the questions and it sounds better with somebody else was asking them anyway but there are a lot of folks involved in the live stream and it does make it a lot easier like um there's a lot of podcasters who do this daily the live stream thing and obviously practice helps with everything but uh yeah i don't know how they would do that without a relatively large crew and of course most of the ones that look good do actually have a crew involved so
1: absolutely well Alexei Kurian, thank you for your super chat. He wants to know, you talk a lot about lasers being used to push spacecraft to high speeds, but is it viable to use light generated by the craft itself for this?
0: Hmm. No, not really. Um, The idea is, well, if you do it at that point in time, it becomes what's called a photon rocket, right? Uh, A photon rocket, and I'll give you two examples of how you would do a photon rocket in a second. The problem with the photon rocket is that you're only getting the actual regular rocket equation set up of you're emitting something. It's a great fuel if you've got a condense like that. I mean, it's the best one out there, but it's still not going to be as good as a laser sail in terms of both the reflection mirror aspect, which is going to double your uh, your um, your gain out of that, and the fact that you're still following the rocket equation, which means you're carrying your fuel with you. Uh, and really if that is your fuel, it makes a lot less difference. but um. I think you'd almost always use that launch assist of having the stuff so how would we actually do a photon rocket realistically uh antimatter is basically a photon rocket technically you get other byproducts besides photons from antimatter though but same difference um the other one would be and i, I would say a neutrino drive would also work as this too although it's not a photon rocket at that point it'd be a neutrino drive but they go very nearly the speed of light um possibly a dark metal drive depending if it's wimps or not but the idea being like let's say i'm in a perfect box That was mirror lined. It it, it was reflective to frequencies of light and it was a perfect mirror, right? I mean, it could bounce light back and forth trillions and trillions and trillions of times and not lose a single photon during that normal duration. Well, now you can fill that thing up with light and slowly release that from the old light cage, and that is a fuel source, like antimatter, only better in some ways. Um, And then, of course, uh, Hawking radiation off a black hole could do something like that too. But like anything with the rocket equation, you have to carry your fuel, which means as you get close to what that you know that uh, rocket exhaust velocity is, of that fuel, you start having to carry a lot more fuel relative to, you know, to the mass of your ship, and we don't want that. And then of course with the laser, the big thing is the photon is coming in, and then it is going right backward. So it gives twice the momentum the ship bounces off it, whereas if it's just getting emitted out the back, one momentum. So that's the advantage of that there. The downsides of what you see is your fuel's not on board, which is you gotta maintain that lock, you depend on that lock, and of course that lock is hard to maintain. That's the hard one. Plus you need that lock, you need that device at the other end of your destination to stop you, so.
1: Alexi sent us a smiley face and said, by the way, happy anniversary. So I think he's thank very you. glad we got to his question. <laughs> um, Eric Johansson, thank you for your super chat. Why do intelligent hive minds in sci-fi always have to use ridiculous telepathy? Can't they just talk to each other?
0: Low bandwidth, actually. That's (laughs) a very good point to raise. Uh, If you think about, you know, we do actually pack a lot more data into our spoken voice and and our body language than raw text. We tend to forget that raw text, you know, doesn't contain that much information. But if you go by, say, my voice, and I I know my voice when I'm narrating the show is 180 words per minute. I can figure out the length of an episode in advance off of that. That's just tend to be where I'm at. So 180 words per minute, well, let's reuse the old bit data of that and assume that was all of, what, uh, 180 bytes per minute of data that was compressing through there. You know, maybe a whole kilobyte per minute. That's really slow. You know, kilobyte per second's really slow. I remember kilobyte per second was actually a fast internet, rate, right? But nonetheless, that's a really slow rate. If your hive mind has to do it by spoken like that, not going to get a lot of data in there. That could work better with some creatures that, like, I think one of our examples we used the alien languages was... They had a 4x4, you know, four, four, four grid of eyeballs they blinked really, really fast or emitted lights from. That might allow you something that moved at that kind of speed, but not a very good hive mind if it's only on a spoken level. And of course, you might say, well, if it's at the spoken level, what's an example of a hive mind? Us, we would be an example of a hive mind. And as I like point out, we are a very limited form of networked intelligence or hive mind. And, you know, going back to all your tribal days and we expanded to be able to increase that to calm people up or send people messages or runners. And at one point with writing we learned how to actually network dead people into our hive mind because a written language allows you to incorporate the undead into <laughs> people who wrote things you know centuries ago into your networked intelligence so interesting concept for that
1: potato says hello love the channel i think i have watched every episode if time travel was possible could we theoretically enter a black hole and then time travel back in time with all the new knowledge learned.
0: There's a lot, a lot of ifs in that one. <laughs> um, you know, obviously, if you've watched all the episodes, you tend to know my view on, on time travel. I think we've done two independent episodes on it alone. Uh, I don't tend to be a big fan of it. But I I view the the idea that, that black holes really let you time travel or travel in wormholes to different locations. I really do view that as kind of an artifact of the math it's there right it is one of the solutions in einstein's general relativity equation or neuthers um and uh it says yes that you could hypothetically do these things i tend to feel that that is that is limiting yourself to an assumption of a math is right as opposed to the physical laws these universe are right and the math applies where it does um so i don't expect that to be the case but yeah, in theory, if you could get into a black hole, there are options for time travel there. Um, I think they'd have to be closed time like ones, though, because otherwise you get all those paradox issues, which you, know, you it's easy for people to get when you move backward in time, you're moving information and energy backward in time, too. So let's say uh, I got stuff falling backward in time. Well, now the universe has more energy to wherever I have time travel to than it did before. That changes everything right there because now you got more energy density and gravity at that spot that that thing is emerged at that wasn't there previously it affects all the universe around etc um for those of you who've seen the black hole bomb uh concept from Kozak, you could potentially set up a doomsday weapon around this the same way you could with a wormhole uh by just dropping something into it over and over again backward in time so you just have to start opening up options like that and that gets worrisome Though you can't do that trick with wormholes where you drop it into a gate that, that sends it back up and keeps dropping it. That will actually lose energy as so it goes back up the top of the wormhole gate. Uh, see our episode on wormholes. Horse we'll more discussion of that so I don't go down a rabbit trail. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Jamie Russell, thank you for your super chat. I use
0: my wife's face as when I know I'm going down a rabbit trail. Let's go <laughs>
1: <laughs> Why wouldn't we presume the Earth is near the center of the universe if we notice galaxies, nearly all, going away from the Earth in all directions.
0: That's the, that I would say is the most obvious conclusion you can make off of that. Uh, and this is a problem, right? The Copernican principle says that we are mediocre, the mediocre, you know, principle, that we're just part of the universe, which would have been infinite in size under the time they were discussing this. They thought there was infinite number of stars, otherwise it would collapse together. Based on all available evidence, the Earth is the center of the universe. Now, you say, what? Okay, because the universe goes out in a certain direction from where we can see, based on all evidence, the universe is centered on Earth. That is what all the evidence says. All the common sense applied to that says it's like I'm standing in the middle of a warehouse and I have a light that lets me see for about 10 feet around me. I should not assume that I'm the center of the warehouse just because I can see the same distance in every direction. So we assume the universe is much bigger than the area we can see. There's a lot of reasons to think that this is true besides, you know, the common sense extrapolation. But yes, the Earth is the center of the known observable universe.
1: All right. Next question is from Kemal Abu. Love your channel, Isaac. Let me grab a drink and a snack. And speaking of which, what do you see as the current future of farming? Factory farming is the current cutting edge, but what's on the horizon for us?
0: I was going to say I got a tractor sitting outside the window. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> its future was sitting there until the fields dry up, let's do anything with it. Um, for those of who didn't know, uh, Sarah and I have a farm here, that, this is where we actually at, it's a farm outside of here. Uh, and she grew up farming, I just grew up in the country, so I'm gardening. But um, I have views on the idea that we would do less open air farming, but there is one problem with that. You can produce way more product inside a climate controlled situation, even just like a greenhouse cheap greenhouse possibly with a plastic or polycarbonate made out of you know biofuels, bio you know like such as various bioplastics you can do that uh, and that will give you higher production and that might potentially actually give you a, a net profit down the road ways. we're not really there yet it depends on how much automation is involved in the system uh, however while i do not believe the earth's population is going to decline anytime soon or at all Uh, and I think it's going to continue to grow, I do think that growth rate is is slowing off. And right now, there's more than enough arable land when managed properly with just known techniques used in developed countries to feed, I'd say probably 20 billion people without having to hack too much into the rest of the uh, setup. Obviously, it depends a lot on, on, you know, what areas you're considering protected. Are you going to treat a pasture land as protected? Are you going to have pasture land for animals? Or, you know, are you going just to strictly a vegetarian or, you know, feedlot style thing, as opposed to pasturing your cow or you giving them grain you grew. Those all change the numbers around on how much you can sport, so does if you switch to more of a fish and algae based food or if you do more GMOs. But there is no problem right now requiring us to be more efficient in terms of requiring like greenhouse overall of our farms to produce enough food for everybody and I really would not expect that in the coming decades, but if we do get severe climatic shifts for instance You might see a lot of that existing on open farms that are now in place because at that point in time you got the farm already there established you might decide you want to close it over so you keep in better moisture or keep out you know improve your drainage there's a lot of options on that i think the big one the takeaway is the future of robot farming for the near future it's not that it's hydroponics or it's not that it's shifting to a closed greenhouse environment it's that it's shifting to automation Mm -hmm. automation 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 in large part, the biggest one, because I don't think people are really embracing the genetic engineering aspect of crops. As well. so, automation, they, they seem to be much more comfortable with. So.
1: Being able to improve things as you go along, the the speed, the efficiency, and yeah. the back-breaking aspects.
0: And it really is nice to have an enclosed cap on your tractor with air conditioning and a Bluetooth radio.
1: Especially so. when you have bees.
0: Yes, yeah. If, uh, get those started again soon.
1: Um. Okay, so Thanks If You Read It says, If most super tech sci-fi, we see basic shapes, spheres, hexagons, etc. Could this be because we send scientists and engineers to space and not artists and designers?
0: Um, you know, there is a desire for beauty in these environments. And one of the things I mentioned in our upcoming Megastructures movie, it's called a movie, it's the Megastructure Compendium, but it's movie-like. Um, is that you would expect a lot of these, uh, what we're calling them because we can, BCW megastructures, the ones like the Flat Earth or the Sombrero planet, that those exist in in a future, not because they're common, but because when you're building millions and millions of, you know, O'Neill Cylinders, you got the funds to build one or two of these other type too. Um, Indeed, you might want to be doing that just a way to store heavy mass like your stored up fusion fuel. However, when you go down the street, you look at the houses nearby you, and what do you see? You see A-frames, right? A-frames because that's what you must work with with housing for timber. When you look at uh, skyscrapers, what do you mostly see? Big rectangles. Why? Because that's what works best with steel. Um, we had a lot more archers in Rome because they could use, you know, that was their height of their way of supporting heavy structures. Um, we can do much buildable buildings now which is why you don't see quite as much arch and dome stuff in our stadiums for instance or our or lecture halls and auditoriums we don't have to use an arch setup to board the building up. Um, so yes it's beautiful to have all these wonderful artistic buildings with their non rectilinear designs and things like that. I can't remember the one uh, architect that does, I think it's sells G, but he does a lot of non rectilinear shapes and uh, those I think will always be the minority though. And uh, that might change if we get to the point that we got super strong materials as cheap as dirt, which might happen with something like graphene uh, or diamondoids. Uh And it might change if uh, we have a lot more automation construction. But right now, for the next few generations at least, I would tend to assume that we would always see that same A-frame setup. Same then for space habitats and mega structures. they might do all sorts of really cool bizarre shaped things. But I think you'd still see that standard of, let's do a lot of cylinders, let's do a lot of rings, let's do a lot of hexagons, you know.
1: Leighton Brown, Isaac, I love your content. In an infinite universe where everything that can happen will happen, what type of planet or system would you most like to explore?
0: Me, personally? This is ironic because the episode I just got done recording is Life as a Planetary Explorer, which is uh, kind of came out of an episode we were doing that turned into a trilogy instead. Um, that will come out sometime in July, I believe. Uh, but, uh, you know, what would life be life as a planetary explorer? And you say, well, what would be a cool place to explore? And the thing is, everything that comes to mind as examples from some book I've read. And, uh, so I think, where would I be exploring at? Well, here on Earth in some virtual reality where those have come to life. Um, I think for me, the one I'd most like to explore, though, personally, would be like a really ancient Ecumenopolis, one of those places where they just done the layer after layer after layer for billions of years. And and now it was an empty out tomb ward and you just got to explore all of that because it would be endless archaeological digs. That to me is is the one that would be most awesome to explore a ecumenopolis gone tomb ward.
1: All right, last question before the break here. Um I will do a fun one. Niall wants to know, what kind of music do you listen to? Um,
0: okay, that's a good question before we go to break. Um, it depends on the genre. Classics-wise, Ravel's Bolero is my personal favorite. Um, let's see. I would say probably the one that I tend to think of as... Sting is my favorite musician uh, overall. I, I've loved his work since the late 90s, and he's been producing longer, uh, Sting from The Police. Um, then after that... Phantom Metallica, Nirvana less so than Foo Fighters, I actually like the Foo Fighters incarnation of that band more, Uh, Alice in Chains, Garbage, Uh, there's a lot of them, I I I I'm a kid of the 90s and the 80s, I grew up on MTV, so a lot of those. (laughs) Let's go ahead and head to break and we'll see you in about four minutes. So we'll be on break for a few minutes and it's a great time to get some more questions in for part two and for our lightning round at the end, as well as get a drink and a snack. This will also be the last chance to get in live questions till summertime, as next month our live stream will be coming live from the International Space Development Conference. where We'll be giving a talk on megastructures, and they'll be broadcasted to their crowd and on this channel at our usual time. They were nice enough to give me the 4 p.m. slot on Sunday, May 29th. Prepping for that finally got me off the fence to redo our original Episode 0, The Structural Summary, from way back in 2014, and a couple weeks after the conference we'll be airing the structural Compendium, which I just got done drafting as I write this midbreak, amusingly on April 1st. It clocks in at the moment at 17,000 words, our usual main script minus sponsor and announcements is generally about a quarter of that to a third of that for long episodes, and it's probably going to have a runtime of 100 minutes, making it our longest episode ever. But I've decided not to cut it down or break it into multiple episodes, I knew it was going to be a long one, I suspect that's the major reason I've put off remaking it so long, as I not only wanted to redo the original but get in all the new megastructures we've discussed since then, and actually a lot we've never gotten to discuss at all, it was around 100 entries, all alphabetical, in the end. Or at least, as of the time I'm writing this. I suspect for the sake of preserving my vocal cords, I'll ask Sarah and maybe a couple others to help narrate it. Before we get back to the show, since I'm probably still making another cup of coffee on the break in real time, we had a good question from Calvin Green after last month's show. He asked if nuclear bombs are bright enough to be used as interstellar signaling devices, and the short answer is yes, easily, and the longer answer is no. One of the problems with seeing nuclear blasts on a planet as a technocinture for instance, ignoring that it might indicate technology is on its way out on their world, is that they are both overshadowed by the overall brightness of that planet and something of a white light source. Our ideal interstellar signal is a directed beam on a single tight band of frequency or wavelength, and not be in a place or range where it's just impossible to really distinguish it from noise. Now if someone does have a telescope trained on a planet that can give any sort of detail, then yes they'll see an anomaly of brightness. A megaton nuclear bomb gives off about 1 50th of the energy, hitting Earth in any given second, and sunlight itself doesn't really vary that rapidly in intensity. Plus you probably have a scope on the Sun too, and we'll know it didn't cause that Most of that light is going out in a few seconds, so a replay is going to give off some very clear telltales of a nuclear blast, especially if was on the night side, including lots of emission and absorption lines. Alternatively, as an actual signaling device, like a flare gun in space, it's not bad. A nuclear blast designed to serve as a signal flare though would be even better. You could potentially rig one up as a bomb pulse laser on a given frequency and direction, in which case that might actually be detectable outside the galaxy, but you could also build the case around one to essentially absorb and re-emit much of the energy in a specific distinct band, like a fluorescent light or mercury lamp, and that might come to be the SOS of interstellar space especially as the blast would have some red or blue shift with the ship's speed that could be used to help determine where escape pods or more likely escape freezer tubes might have drifted to you by the time you arrive. There's a number of other possible ways to use a nuke, or nukes as a signal too, maybe a topic for a future episode, so great question Calvin, I hope I answered it. As usual we don't have time for every question, even with a lightning round, and most folks miss the live session and see the replay, so I try to get to the questions folks leave afterwards in the comments section and pick ones to answer on the breaks the next month, though of course not next month this time as I'll be giving that talk I mentioned a couple minutes ago. Alright, let's get back to more of your questions. Hi, welcome back, everybody. I had a timing thing right there for, and I still missed it.
1: I was having fun watching the little robot character get his drink and snack, and didn't yeah, realize become that. become my that automatic we were default to,
0: to remind back. me. To come on, back to it though. <laughs> this time, it was using the mushroom cloud, but it was on the delayed signal. So, for anyone who doesn't know, that usually these things don't go completely live. There's like a 20 second lag time between whatever I say and whatever shows up. So that's over on another screen. So <laughs> there's like four or five screens up here. And- I think she's still using a tablet and a phone too at the same Sorry. time. Yeah.
1: yeah. Distractions. <laughs> All right. Well, let's jump right back in. And Clash says With the Enceladus in- and Uranus missions heavily considered by NASA, how far off do you think fast, cheap exploration of the solar system is?
0: Um, I think, honestly, I would say it's going to be inside this, not this next decade. I mean, it's putting a little bit too much stuff in this decade. It is amazing what we've gotten done, Uh, you know, in terms of. Uh, Just this new commercialization approach to space that we always hoped for in the 90s and thousands and didn't see it developed and now it's here, you know. And I don't think we can see a sudden upswell in robot probes going out this decade. But think of 2030s as the time we launch all the, you know, the late 2020s maybe, but the 2030s, that's when we launch all the probes. Of course, they're going to take a long time to get there, so it might be the 2040s in some case if we get to heal back from them
1: jerry's stories if you had perfect mirrors and could perfectly calm uh colmate light you could build active support structures that use photons instead of particles
0: so we could that'd be jerry Gorn. by the way if you haven't been to jerry's stories uh one of our regular editors jerry Gorn. that's where he keeps a lot of his short stories he writes uh that he's recorded in audio format uh at my suggestion (laughs) so that he's a great narrator so uh go make sure you check out jerry's stories um and uh yes you could use that for active sport too you know it's that pressure you could give them that. same for if you had a, a perfect room temperature superconductor and magnetic shielding
1: isaac bordeaux happy anniversary and what mm-hmm. do you think the earth will look like in the year 3000
0: um i think that the earth will look like oh jeez earth i think <laughs> I was going to say, I think that by the year 3000, you'd probably expect there to be so many orbital structures around us in orbit. You know, that Terra and Swarm we sometimes talk about, which also appears in the upcoming megastructures video, June 9th, um, that you would probably have a rule about people not being able to put, you know, so many lights in the visible range on. Mm. Uh, all the guidance lights would probably be intentionally put into other frequencies that were not visible, and you would probably have people expected to paint their, you know, their space structures black just they weren't reflecting the night with 5 billion stars. What do I expect Earth to look like by then? Uh, it's going to be the most valuable piece of real estate in the universe for the next million years at least. Right? Uh, at least all part of the universe, you know, until we get into some other species. Like, well, we've been around for a billion years already. Uh, in which case, I would expect it to continue to uh, rise in value and development. I don't think it's going to turn into some glass and concrete monstrosity, though. You know? <laughs> so...
1: So I think you may have answered Joseph's question along the way, but he wants to know if we will make it for another hundred years or if the AI will take us out.
0: I don't know. Um, I think not. I really don't I don't think that AI will take us out. I could see AI and cyborgs and transhumans supplanting us, but I don't think that they would take us out. I think we'd still be around, you know.
1: Alright, Ram Don says, Hello, Isaac. I am a big fan, and I want to ask you, could it be in theory possible to use exotic mass to make a TARDIS-like spaceship that's bigger on the inside?
0: Yes. That is another fun thing you can do with anti-gravity or gravity control if it's good enough, too, is you can start creating spaces that are bigger on the inside than the outside. You can start getting your closet that is the size of the you know the, the TARDIS closet, as you will. And um, I think that I would be very dubious if we'd ever get anything that that level of fine control. But anti-gravity is one of those areas, or, or artificial gravity production is one of those areas where I don't rule it out the same way I do like perpetual motion machines or fast light travel, because there is nothing explicitly forbidding us from manipulating gravitons, right? Whereas those others seem to actually violate laws i don't know that i would think that would ever get us to actually do the big on the inside and outside thing but yes you can warp space and time with control of gravity so hypothetically you could have the uh the idea of hammer space you know the old the anvil out of nowhere hammer space idea which has so many applications so it's ridiculous but is great for luggage you can carry so much luggage around with that and since anti-gravity or gravity controlled you can make it lighter too so it's not just that it's bigger on the inside you pack a whole house in there and drag it behind you or keep so it so you pocket. mean
1: i wouldn't just be theoretically packing the whole house at that point
0: correct yes well well we're guilty of that we don't pack as light as we should
1: ramuk says if we know that dyson spheres or swarms are demonstrably more efficient then why don't sci-fi shows or books ever use them
0: well it depends on the sci-fi writer in question they show up in books a lot you know they're not as but it's whole to write something at that scale, right? You, as a writer, are trying to produce a story about humans. Possibly aliens, but humans anyway, right? About people and having this this kind of background. Going to even something like the Ringworld, right? Think of the Ringworld novel with Larry Niven. It's on this gigantic structure that's over a million times the living area of Earth. And yet, the story, while it tries to cover so much of that, is, is really more like that is the big dumb object they're exploring, the reason why these people are going that actually is the tale of that place. Um, a Dyson Swarm is, to me, it's the background in which you set a story because it lets you do all these things without FTL, you have all these artificial worlds so near each other that you can travel under known laws of science between them in days and, and hours and weeks, you know, you can do that. Uh, so to me it's the replacement for fashion light travel, that's its main story focus. A Dyson Swarm lets you have millions of worlds within short travel times. Well, if you already have FTL as something I'm so comfortable with, and even those of us who don't believe it ever was going to exist, are comfortable with as it, a sci-fi uh, tool, then you don't really need to put that into play. But I'd say that's the big one. And then, of course, the other one is Dyson swarms, the most components of rotating habitats and things like that. And while we're starting to see those pop up a lot more in fiction now, in, in terms of visuals for them, they still haven't really become that normal mainstay, and they still take a lot of special effects and they're hard to film inside of, so to speak. You're not getting that quarter prize, and while you're filming the desert somewhere, you on Earth.
1: Vincent Cleaver, thank you for your super chat. He says, Happy anniversary. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Isaac Bordeaux Excited to see the updated Megastructures video. Do Good. you think that you will ever remake your Kardashev scale video?
0: <laughs> Technically, there's two episodes there because that was when we messed up the music and put it in too loud, and I didn't want to take the video down by the time people noticed it, so I released a second one that had no music in the background for that. Uh, I think we probably would. I, I, I have the rules. I don't repeat episodes, right? But I'm willing to remake some of the classic ones with new updated material and stuff like that. So we probably will see an update of the Forming Paradox compendium slash solutions video if, if the Structures compendium goes well. Because, again, it's a 90, 100-minute video. I don't really want to start doing tons of those. It's just, you know, a He's saying, episode.
1: get ready to have a very long... Long sci, uh, <laughs> science fiction with isaac arthur or science and futures and with isaac arthur watching free, so that you can give a thumbs up to that 100 minute video
0: so if everybody <laughs> watches that video, work. it does very well obviously there would be more of the video so there you go <laughs> but it's obviously going to it's going to basically be a month-long project to make
1: like so. and share with your friends yes thank you <laughs> All right. Eric Johansson, thank you for your super chat. Are deadly cocktails of specialized viruses, bacteria and parasites a good option for future pesticides instead of toxic chemicals that we use today?
0: Um, I mean, in terms of being effective, a virus bombing a planet is always a good approach.
1: <laughs> I think somebody some asked us like how would you go ahead and
0: you know, engage in in alien invasion, what would you expect and say, Well they want to wipe us out? they'd probably pepper us with their garbage as the fleet was coming to orbit, then virus bomb us, then nuke us, then send in the killers to find us individually and get the survivors. Um. I think that we wouldn't be very reluctant to use artificially tailored viruses for pest control. I don't think very many people are going to be comfortable with the idea of us releasing artificially tailored viruses. In the long term, as people get more comfortable with that, maybe, right? But I think, especially, like, if you'd asked me a couple years ago, not a couple of years ago if you asked me three years ago i'd have said we probably could get more comfortable with that technology i would say that we have at least a couple of generations right now that would hear the term artificially tailored virus to be used around for you know pest control and say no right and it may I'm, depend on the context
1: though because um like some infected nematodes are being used currently in farming practices to eliminate other types of pests mm-hmm. so it probably depends on the context and the scale.
0: Sure, yeah, uh, and I'd agree with that too. But, uh, you know, again, pest control with existing bits of biology or mildly tailored ones, is a lot more okay to folks than, I think right now the term genetically engineered <laughs> viruses is going to be too much for folks for a while.
1: <laughs> TKG Wildfire, thank you for your super chat. What would be the best crops to grow on new colonies?
0: Um... I mean, your, your core ones, they're going to give you that balance uh, of uh, nutrients that you actually have to get. Uh, proteins, anything in the case like that, proteins. Whatever can actually grow on the local regolith would be ideal, too. We talk about hydroponics a lot as an option, but it is nice to actually have that soil aspect. Uh, so anything that can, as a secondary aspect, actually get you some soil production going on. Um, the biggest one, I would say, probably something you could use for plastics. I think that'd probably be your single biggest crop would be your your your, your base medium for for making plastics out of it, like polycarbonates, etc. Poppy algae.
1: I just saw a comment that said that they love your string tie. very mm. old West.
0: Thank you. My farming tie.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I thought you said it was your pie tie. It is
0: my pie tie.
1: Um. Isaac, if pulsars are used as interstellar GPS systems, how would a navigation coordinate system be built around them?
0: Uh, badly. Uh, I, I, pulsars are an amazing lucky find in terms of their accuracy, but you got to keep in mind, we talk about, well, you got the pulsars all over the galaxy. That's a good way to find your location if you fell through like a warp portal into some weird part of the galaxy or universe and away you were. You could start checking pulsars, assuming that warp portal just conveniently dumps you out the same sp- point in time too which is not really how that kind of stuff would work um otherwise though you'd be a lot better off taking some local veg wolf or star putting some statites around it as your power supply and then picking a frequency of sound and then doing exactly what we do with our gps right now this is my identifier code and the time is this is my identifier code and the time is and from that you listen to five or six of those and say aha and your time is down to millions or billionths of a second, right, which lets you get pretty accurate, which is kind of nice when you're dealing with speeds that might be in excess of kilometers per second and you want to know where you're actually at. Uh, pulsars, your accuracy might be might be milliseconds, which is not bad, especially if you're trying to figure out where in the approximate region of space you are, but it's not going to let you really be walking accurately inside a solar system.
1: Joseph says, given that humanity has survived to this extent, what is the possibility that there is an external alien force protecting us?
0: Um, I would guess, pro- I mean, if there, it, but this is one of those ones where you cannot actually tell from the evidence around you if such thing is or isn't true. So you speculate. It comes out like simulation hypothesis. Are we in a reality or are we not? Uh, the idea that there is a benevolent outside alien force or entity you take your pick right is basically to follow the idea of is this the setup that we'd expect to see based on their motivation to help us right they say well if their idea is they don't want us to suffer any sort of pain or harm then obviously there's then they wouldn't exist because this isn't a harmless or painless existence but at the same time if their goal was to you and again you start going through that list and, and then your guessment's as good as mine for that but you cannot answer a question like that from ex- you know external evidence around you. You are basically trying to say, based on this external evidence and the assumption of what their motivation is, does it fit? And that's kind of your limitation on that. We'll talk about that more in the Godlike Aliens episode that is actually up on the screen above my head right now,
1: <laughs> coming out May fifth. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Sam Evra. Hello, Isaac. First off, happy anniversary. Thank you. In many sci-fi stories, precursor races are often major parts to a story, but seem to, at least to me, very unrealistic. How would you rate precursors?
0: Um, One of my favorite pages on TV Tropes, which is is like a black hole of a website that you'll get lost in for hours. It's what's the Wikipedia that way. You start opening up new links on new links and new links to you. have got 40 links open on your web browser and all of the different articles. But TV Tropes, I think I actually have an entry there too. Um... (laughs) They have a precursor page on benevolent precursors, neglectful precursors, and abusive precursors, and uh, they go through a lot of sci-fi races and try to hold them accountable. And I would love to actually do, you know, uh, some side episodes one day on, on just like which these classic science fiction precursor races qualify as, which and for which reason. Abusive precursor races are oh, they hate us, they be kind of or they or they just don't like us all. I think you're H.P. Lovecraft precursors like Cthulhu. The benevolent ones, we see those a lot of times in sci-fi, but then as we examine them more, they don't really seem that way anymore because there's a question of why don't they help out the heroes? Why aren't they doing anything? And the reasons given tend to make them seem more like neglectful or even malevolent, abusive precursors. And of course, the reason—the real reason is if they help the heroes out in the show all the time or in the book, the series would be very boring because somebody's stepping in to help them out constantly, but it often makes them come off as very unbelievable and implausible. And again, see that Godlike aliens episode for more details on that May fifth
1: <laughs> all right. we have a super chat here from Christian Corello. Thank you. Can a Dyson's form be mobile like a giant ship and encompass multiple stars? Yes Oh that wasn't all of the <laughs> oh, question okay, <laughs> <laughs> okay. also, is there any way to run by you ideas for a sci-fi novel I plan on writing, including illustrations I made
0: um that's a tricky one is uh well, okay Forced to answer the question yes uh you can absolutely make a maltese dyson style system one of those is also going to be our Megastructures' company episode coming out june 9th <laughs> but um you can certainly do conglomerations of stars in these things uh, and you can move them see our fleet of stars episode for more discussion of that um but uh especially the quasar drive which is the best way to move them um the second question when it comes to people writing books and saying to me these days, the answer in most cases is, is no. I'm always happy to look at illustrations, I love seeing them, uh, but it's just not realistic timeline wise anymore. I, I there's a number of people, I offered to do it before and I'm still back pending on backlogs from like four or five years ago. So there was exceptions, like I hope Dennis e. Taylor review one of his novels, that was great, you know, but uh, for the most part, no, not so much. Uh, sorry. What I do suggest in cases like this though is our social media forums because there are a lot of other writers in there. And in fact, that first episode, The Megastructure Compendium was actually written not as an episode for YouTube, but as kind of a help log for other people in a sci-fi form of writers that I was regularly helping out at, where they ask, is this realistic or not? So it if I could, I would probably put those as one of my highest priorities, but the problem is
1: it's just too many of them. Mark Terpstra, I heard that the solar wind Every known element, in it. I'm sorry, that one didn't make sense to me. Um,
0: yeah, there's...
1: if this makes tr- is true, how hard would it be to capture these elements? Does that make sense? Yep, as a question?
0: Yeah, okay. um, the star lifting episode would discuss that a little bit more. But the basic idea is, solar wind is mostly hydrogen, and then it's mostly helium. And not just because that's the majority of what our sun is. 1% of our sun is stuff that is not hydrogen or helium. And of course, most of that is actually oxygen, silicon, ion, etc. Actually, not that much silicon, really, but a lot of oxygen and so forth. Um, but that tends not to blow away. Same as the gas that mostly is off of Earth is hydrogen, uh, followed by helium because it doesn't bond to anything. Um, the heavier gas is, the more likely it is to, not, you know, to, to stay put. So a lot of those heavier materials stay inside. Uh, you can blow them off, uh, and that's the kind of the key of starlifting is that we try to push chunks of it out there to grab them. But the solar wind itself is almost entirely hydrogen, and but there's a lot of other elements there that you're not really going to find just because they're not that common. But yeah, you're going to have that one part per trillion of uh, of that material. But you know, it's hard to harvest. See the starlifting episode for details.
1: Okay, we have a. Uh... Oh, we do here?
0: Episode one of these days. Go
1: ahead. What?
0: I <laughs> uh, should redo the style of the episode someday.
1: Well, you said you don't do redos. Yeah, but, but I make-overs. could expand on it a lot. <laughs> All <laughs> right. Ishiki Brown. Do you think that in the future, when humans colonize planets, there will be planet-sized population migrations, like we might see in the near future due to climate change?
0: I don't think you'd have the population of an entire planet move from from one planet to another. I think, and this is the key thing, is like. We, we have sci-fi that, and this is dreadful sci-fi, in my opinion. They basically say that we're ruining this planet, so we need to terraform this other planet and move there. Nothing we're doing to our planet right now would actually be harder to fix than to set up in the first place on another planet. If we nuked this place till it turned to glass and blew the air off and the oceans in their entirety, it would still be easier to terraform this planet than Mars. So, you know, and this kind of goes in the idea here of um, if you have a dirty campsite, you can pick up and move to another location, or you can clean up your campsite. The reason why you move your campsite, if you're a decent person, is because you would like to go see another location, not because you're a pig. (laughs) So, (laughs) fix your (laughs) right. And I suspect your neighbors will feel the same way. Like, well, we'd like to colonize a new planet. We've junked ours. Uh, Yeah, we'll put you on the list somewhere down near the bottom. There's other people who would like that planet, (laughs) too. Yeah.
1: All right. Thanks if you read it. Thank you for your super chat. Maybe yeah, well, we don't see Dyson spheres anywhere because it is seen as a threatening weapon saying that we can attack you with a gamma ray and get attacked.
0: I think the, the problem there is that an advanced civilization has so many weapons that, you know, uh, I mean, you just kind of go with that. It's, it's we talked about in Hidden Alien Civilizations episodes why you, if you want to be left to yourself, you actually put up beacons saying, Here we are. Right, because you don't want people to just stumble in your territory because that's going to cause you problems. You can't just go blow people's ships up. Eventually someone's going to send an investigatory fleet and it might be an armada that's heavily armed to say what did you do to all ships, right? You, the best way to keep people off your land is pass no trespassing signs and keep off my lawn. And kind of the same way is people know what kind of weapons you got. If you're a civilization that's ancient and powerful and so there's no reason to hide that those might exist especially when they're the base sphere of civilization. Someone looks at a Dyson sphere and they see a potential weapon. Well, if they look at New York City, they see a potential weapon, right? Because how many factories are in New York City? How much money, wealth, power, and influence and research is done in New York City? You don't look at a city like that and say, oh, they're, they're homeless. You know, It's like that old question, right? probably apocryphal with Joe Stalin, how many legions does the Pope have or how many divisions? The answer is as many as he needs to grab. Same for a place like New York City, they could arm to teeth pretty easily just by their assistance.
1: All right, we are wrapping up, so it is time for the lightning round. Lightning are you out. ready? <laughs> <laughs> All right. No,
0: but go ahead. No, anyway.
1: <laughs> you don't want a lightning round.
0: Go ahead. Oh, <laughs> see if we can get through with something.
1: Vincent Cleaver, thank you for your five dollars super chat. Happy anniversary. Thank see, you. that's an easy one. That's and, easy one, yes. and more outward bound star system colonization episodes. Maybe pick a close brown dwarf, not a star.
0: I think we could do that. We know we're colonizing brown dwarfs episode. And actually, if someone will send that to me uh, afterwards so I can remember that, Sindri maybe, we will add colonizing brown dwarfs to the uh, to the roster.
1: <laughs> Cheers. Uh, awesome guy says, whoops, it just went away. Well, somebody was having a, a comment and it just vanished. So if I find it again, I'll bring that one back up. Um, Cerny Vitez, have you perhaps read Process Physics by Reginald Cahill, and could you share your thoughts?
0: I have not, so unfortunately I cannot, sorry.
1: <laughs> Someone commented that pigs are clean animals, and that is, that is definitely true.
0: Yeah, it was it Sindri? He, he it was not, okay.
1: <laughs> or at least, if it's so, it was under another name. <laughs> Can you build a shell world around a star with both near-Earth gravity and livable temperatures?
0: Can you build a what?
1: shell world around a star with both near earth gravity and livable temperatures it
0: depends on what kind of star it is stars have a mass and a luminosity based on that mass that do not scale even a little bit uh and so you have to get that right sweet spot uh you can do it a lot easier with a white dwarf right because it's a much lower luminosity so basically your options are red dwarfs and white dwarfs you can't do it around our own sun too hot for its mass
1: Bert Fisher says, is that a joystick to the right of you, Isaac?
0: It actually is, yes. I've been getting way less uses of that joystick of late than I should.
1: And a few uh, other people want to know how the flying lessons are
0: coming. <laughs> appropriate question. We actually, our instructor is probably still in Florida. Is he back I think yet?
1: so. He we yeah. went to the uh,
0: Some convention aviation, for aviation convention. Yeah. So a little behind on that right now. Sarah's is still way better at it than I am.
1: <laughs> I, I guess that's a good thing, but uh, we've had a few people... Uh, Jumping in with happy anniversary. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. And I think I'm finally finding where that question was before we jumped off of it there. All right. It was, what do you think the ratio between gas giants and terrestrial planets is in the universe?
0: Terrestrials are very, actually, now that I think about gas giant, is also a very vague term. Um, I'm going to assume, based on our corner sample, we have four terrestrial and four gas giants, depending how we want to find them, that they're going to be a roughly even mix plus or minus an order of magnitude. So I'm going to go out there on a limb and say that gas giants will not outnumber terrestrial planets by more than 10 to 1, nor terrestrial planets outnumber gas giants by more than 10 to 1.
1: So. <laughs> okay. Would would it would the nuclear bomb be the equivalent of a galactic weapon that keeps the peace with mutually assured destruction?
0: Uh, I think a key thing, and for those of us who kind of grew up during the Cold War, we all have more different viewpoints on this but mutually assured destruction is not a new concept it's just it got tagged in there for um the cold war civilizations when they are numerous not a them versus us binary situation where you have lots of them all exist in a state where they could really severely wound or cripple each other if they're willing to throw everything they had at somebody but leave them exposed and weak to other people and that is that mutually assured destruction concept as it shows back up in previous civilizations nuclear bombs You don't have to have a doomsday weapon individually to make people feel that way, but once you get to a certain level of technology, it still works. You know, nuclear bombs are still incredibly potent weapons at the interstellar scale. It's all about where you're hitting with it. Maybe you can blow one up with an O'Neill Cylinder. Well, an O'Neill Cylinder as a manufacturing center can probably build thousands of them. So if you might need a trillion of them to blow up a Dyson Swarm, well, you've got a quadrillion on hand, you know? (laughs)
1: This is a lightning round.
0: Okay, faster answers. would what taught me. Correct.
1: <laughs> Scott Ferguson says, within the simulation hypothesis, envisioning our own capability to create these simulations in the future, do you think that simulators implement limitations to stop us from creating our own simulations?
0: Possibly, uh, and actually that's the point I did not cover in an upcoming simulation hypothesis relook episode. I'm not gonna use the word reboot because it's different material, um, but I would say that would make a lot of sense, except it's a bit of a giveaway, right? You have to make them think it would be impossible to try, and then, and then they look into it, they find they can't do it when they expect they should be able to do it. Could be a hint. You kind of want to set things up so it looks like it's impossible from the get go.
1: Ramuk says, "Do you consider it possible that life is so uncommon that we might never encounter naturally occurring aliens?" I hope not.
0: I, I like to think that the universe has a lot of at least simple life in all galaxies. That's why I'm keeping my fingers crossed for plants, covered in algae and simple organisms. Um, But uh, it's a big universe, you know, it's a big universe. I hope we can find something else in there to to at least find at the animal stage. But we'll see. That's the big thing. We'll have to find out.
1: Phil Spooner says, Isaac, what would be the ideal physical body for an uploaded consciousness or an A.I., a normal robot like today's or some sort of soft robot? Or a body made of claytronics.
0: Claytronics, probably, but I could never quite get over the idea of having like a spider tank chassis with, you know, big Gatling guns on the shoulders.
1: Did you just say spider?
0: Spider tank chassis, yes. No spider. (laughs) No.
1: No. (laughs) Can you please rethink that? (laughs) Next. (laughs) I'm having you rethink that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) A non spider, it's like a six legged one instead of like eight.
1: That's just as bad. That's a mosquito.
0: A non-bipedal chassis.
1: <laughs> um, I, I don't think we got to this one earlier. What do you think of the Janus model, and how would it allow faster-than-light travel through what amounts to hyperspace, but without requiring negative energy or exotic matter?
0: What was the name again?
1: J-A-N-U-S.
0: Oh, Janus. Um, See our know, hyperspace episode, because I'm not going to be able to give you details on that in, in, in a short period of time. <laughs>
1: Next, Sorry. do you think that flying cars will have loud muffler customizations and other yes. annoying accessories uh, like we see in cars today or showing off accessories so, depending on who's asking?
0: So, in the hyperspace one, I actually don't think it will work though, it's a nice idea. For the ones I used to live in a resort town before we moved out here to the foam, and during the summer, motorcycles would go by by the hundreds at a time because uh, we had a big motorcycle rally that would take place. there, are uh, very good for local economy. And of course, I always find myself wondering, why don't people put a muffler on this <laughs> giant machine? And of course, the answer that I find myself thinking is because they would like to make it even louder. So yes, the answer would be yes.
1: Or like uh when my younger brother pulls in the driveway and you're like, man, that truck yeah. is loud. And he's like, do you like it? Yeah. I, I was trying to amp it up a little bit. Yes. <laughs> Uh oh. <laughs> Morning Star says, just wanted to say hi and I love your work. You put everything so simple that even a former sailor can understand. Keep doing what you're doing.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Albert Jackinson, hello from California.
0: Hi, Albert. Good to have you.
1: Shogun, love from Russia. Thank you. Um someone says, Hey from Ukraine. Thank you too. Airplane for starring Isaac and his co-pilot. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um I think that I've gotten through the majority of the questions here. I was just looking to make sure because it jumped a couple times, and mm-hmm. I thought we skipped a few. But
0: I think was it uh given the existence of stre- extreme Okay, there we go. I what? got I got one on the screen. For some reason, yes, it's locked up. You
1: can read that one. If can you read that My one? My screen you want is to?
0: locked up. Actually, okay, it's, I'll read that one to you.
1: Yeah. uh That was a super chat from Christian Corello. Given the existence of extremophiles like Deinococcus radiodurans and mm-hmm. solar flares from red dwarfs apparently erupting from their poles, does that boost the chances of life on Proxima Centauri B?
0: Wow, so weirdly, my screen is locked up. I'm going to, have to keep it on sale for the moment, and I guess it's probably a good sign to stop. I like <laughs> the idea that extremophiles <laughs> will be available to us on red dwarf planets. I think people terribly misunderestimate the probability of uh, red dwarfs hosting life and i have all been too tightly locked too i think we'll find that red dwarf planets have lots of simple life on them and i think we'll see extremophiles that are doing even weirder things we've already found so extremophiles are the the kind of the thumb of the nose of those who assume that life had a really thin narrow spectrum it could survive into and so on that note with the idea of isaac saying that alien life might be a lot more common than we've previously indicated although probably very simple alien life We'll go ahead and close out so i'm not can't wave the screen because it's not showing up on me but okay i'll wait for you
1: <laughs> me and you bye so,
0: <laughs> thank you for two years of my wonderful pro, uh, co-host here sarah fellow author and we will see you <laughs> in may live from the international space development conference